With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. When you've made five movies that average over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, it's fair to say that you're doing something right in the eyes of the discerning film fan. Uh, Writer-director Jeff Nichols has done just that. From his debut Shotgun Stories to Take Shelter, Mud and Midnight Special, he's proved himself to be a master craftsman, capable of breathing life into, well, an incredibly diverse range of subjects. His latest offering, Loving, is no exception. Starring Joel Edgerton and Ruth Neger, it tells the true story of the landmark US court case, Loving versus Virginia, which challenged the state laws prohibiting interracial marriage. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, a weekly podcast with the cinematic A-list in which we celebrate music in film. Now, as with all my guests, music is a central feature of Jeff's work, from the scores provided by his go-to composer, David Wingo, to the considered placement of pop favourites from his youth. He has more than met the contrasting sonic demands presented by the narratives that he's brought us. Now, as you're about to hear, he also has a wonderfully soft and lyrical voice, which kind of makes it sound like he's smiling the whole time. Welcome to Soundtrack and it's a pleasure. I'm such a fan of your films and every time I hear that you're making a new one, it's always a surprise because I never quite know where you're going next, which is lovely. You're an unpredictable director. Thank you. Thanks I hope for you take that. that as a compliment. I do. I, I absolutely do. I do. <laughs> Let's talk about Loving first. A fantastic story of one I was, I was not aware of um, based on this, this incredibly dedicated and loving couple um, who wouldn't let anything stand in the way uh, of what what they believed in Uh, and a great cast as well Uh, and once again you just subtly weave music beautifully into your productions if you don't mind just talking about how how important music is to you as a filmmaker overall of course you know if you think about filmmaking as a language then music is like all the consonants or something (laughs) (laughs) it's such a it's such an important part of it all an important part of the communication or the dialogue that you're having with the audience. For me, it all begins early in the writing. When I'm conceiving of the story, all I'm doing is listening to music. Uh, in fact, before I put pen to paper, uh, I'm doing it right now with my next film. I just listen to music and drift through different tones. You know, Sometimes it's upbeat, sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's humorous. I just let things kind of strike me. And as I'm listening to the different songs, I'm holding the story, the current story that I'm working on in my mind. And it starts to change things and, and different inflections start to hit it. And you come up with different pathways and transitions and ideas for how the narrative could go. It's a really great way to um, break up the, the linear quality of writing. Because usually when you're thinking about stories, you're just thinking beginning, middle, and end. But if you, if you kind of go into this headspace of just dreaming about tone, 
and feeling and emotion, and that's what music really is. It gets to the heart of a feeling very quickly and very simply. That's where it all begins. So when I give David Wingo, my composer, uh, a script, I usually give him a playlist along with it that isn't saying, I want this music in the film. Yeah. Although that happens. And it actually happened in Loving more than um, my other films. So he's getting this tonal impression that I had when I was when I was writing the film. And he already kind of starts working. Even when we're shooting, he's kind of noodling around ideas. In a film like Midnight Special, he sent me that theme while we're, we're, we were shooting. And I listened to it every day on the way to set. It just so perfectly kind of encapsulated the tone that we were going for, but also the this idea of homage. It sounded kind of like an 80s song, but, but wasn't. It was also yeah. modern. on purpose. My editor always does an assembly cut first, so she's cutting while we're shooting, and I don't look at it. It's really her time with the footage, because I'm so specific about how the shots go. Um, <laughs> we get in, and, and I do that, but she will have always had her cut, yeah. um, which a lot of times we go back and reference. I made a demand this time. She usually cuts to temp track music while that's happening. I said, none. I don't want any music, because this film and this story could lend itself to histrionics so easily. I think the emotions are so big and so powerful that I wanted to make sure they were really there. I wanted to make sure they were on screen before we added score underneath yeah. it. Because score can, it's funny, it can mislead you. For instance, when you're writing, when I'm actually doing the physical typing, I don't listen to music. Okay. Because you can type out a scene listening to the Thin Red Line soundtrack. And you're like, this is the greatest, <laughs> this is the greatest scene I've ever written. And then you read it again without the music, and you're like, wow, this is not good at all. <laughs> this has no, no emotion in it. And it's kind of that approach to this edit. I was like, I want to make sure it's there. slowest boring most boring version of the movie to ever watch you definitely need it but whenever we we put music in we knew that it, it was supporting something that was really there and Wingo uh, I remember he sent my editor this theme that you hear in the film for loving and I think he said something like oh Nichols isn't gonna like this but I don't know I like it just just I don't know give it a try and she cut it in uh, without me in the room she cut it in underneath the final sequence uh, during the Supreme Court oral arguments and it was just beautiful yeah. i mean beautiful and classic but also somehow somewhat reserved yeah um, i like score that sneaks in and sneaks out you don't necessarily feel it come in or or leave so it just becomes part of the landscape and wingo's really good at that on a film like midnight special you do it a lot with kind of synth tones and drones that's also what we did in take shelter yeah but with a film like this it's all strings and beds of strings we wanted to keep it really organic and classic i suppose is a term
you say those emotions are bigger than anything else could be, the emotion can lead to the music rather than the music leading the emotion. Absolutely, you know. It's kind of like throwing fuel on a fire or putting your foot on a gas pedal. If you put it down too much, it becomes dangerous and, <laughs> and starts to distract. But we need it so desperately, you know. And it was really part of a calculation combined with even specific camera movements more in this film than I've ever done before. I think it, from a directing standpoint, Loving's the most technically proficient uh, job of, that I've done as a director. For instance, there's a scene in a field where uh, he's proposing to her at the beginning of the film. And they're standing in this field. She's known this field her whole life. It's just a field. There are a bunch of them. But then he explains that he bought it for her, and that's where he's going to build this home. And now, all of a sudden, the importance of this ground and dirt and grass, it shifts for her. She doesn't move. She doesn't talk. She just processes it in her mind. She looks around at it as if seeing it for the first time. And we do this slight push-in on her face that was always planned right for that moment. And it's not motivated by movement, which is really one of my rules, that there can be no unmotivated camera movement. But this, I felt like, was motivated. Mm -hmm. And it's motivated by this interior dialogue that's happening. And with an actress as good as Ruth, it's all happening on her face as well. And then you put that piece of score right under that move, and it comes in right under that move, and it's like a, and I mean this in the best way, <laughs> it's complete manipulation of a, mo of a moment and a feeling. And that's all parts working. That's like cinema at its best. The directing, the acting, the score, the editing. Every department is on display in a moment like that. I want to put the kitchen back, right back here. Richard, stop this. I don't know what you're saying. I bought it. This whole acre. I'm gonna build you a house. Right here. Our house. fan growing up, the moments that you remember that happening, of those moments where everything just clicked. There's so many. I remember as a kid being really affected by A Perfect World by Clint Eastwood with Kevin Costner. I love that film. And there are parts, uh, well, to speak about music, there's this amazing sequence that is discordant and scary, but also sad and beautiful. Near the end of the film, he puts on a record of this Cajun waltz, which is a really bizarre sound. It's a, it's an accordion that almost sounds um, in pain. In pain, yes, <laughs> yes. And these these fiddles that are, are painful as well. And and he puts this music on, and he's about to potentially murder this man for hitting a child, and that's his thing. And it's all set against this. It it almost feels like lungs because of the accordion. And this is before I knew anything about the mechanics of filmmaking, but uh, I was always struck by that and that part in that film. 
But then, you know, you get to college and, and I see Badlands for the first time. treehouse forest and this music starts i don't think i've ever seen music used so well it took something that could have been so mundane in terms of the people and the place and the setting and it made it magnificent you have that instance where music is is within the narrative so you have the band playing in the house or you have the music on the radio those personal choices or do you have to slightly remove yourself from that and think about the characters well there were three personal choices (laughs) in my research i found out that mildred's brothers had played in a hillbilly band in a bluegrass band and how fascinating is that black musicians played hillbilly music but you got to think virginia's you know at the at the at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains and it just it made a lot of sense when you thought about it like no they're not listening to Chicago R&B necessarily they're they're listening to bluegrass music and hillbilly music as they referred to it so that scene uh, it was very important for me to get that that music into that early scene and to have the musicians one of which is Benjamin Booker by the way I don't know if you know no I didn't is yeah, it Benjamin Booker on oh guitar. wow yeah he uh, we became friends and I'm friends with his manager and and uh, and you know uh, he's the product of an interracial marriage and and uh, and he just said he wanted to come hang out and be involved. And he was very gracious to show up and do that. But also, you know, that there's more going on there because there's so many things in this story and this narrative that challenge our notions of the American South during that period. Mm-hmm. And that's just an example of one of them, you know. Um, Central Point, the town that they were from as a whole, was just a fabulously unique place in terms of racial mingling and everything else. Because it's not just the mingling of, of the races, but the cultures as well. Yeah. And, and that kind of represented it. These other two songs, I've been listening to them since high school. There's a song, You Don't Miss Your Water by William Bell. Otis Redding does a version of it, and Otis Redding is untouchable, no doubt. But I like the William Bell version. In the beginning, you really loved me. I was too glad. I because it's the first one I, I really heard and knew. But I remember being on set and we're pulling away from the two actors on this long dolly shot and I was playing it in headphones because um, I knew that's exactly where that cue would come in and that that would actually cover this montage of time passing and children being born. Because you don't miss your water. I mean, William Bell's singing about you don't miss 
the woman you love until she's left you. Which doesn't make sense because this is a love story about two people staying together. But I, I felt like it's like he was singing about home because they yeah. were taken away from this place and you don't miss this place that you love so much until it's gone. That's how I kind of re reverse engineered um, <laughs> using it in its logic. You know, that's a, I think a song that was written in about 62 and technically the song begins in like 59. Yeah. Um, but again, I reasoned out like, it takes, it takes you to 62. <laughs> yeah. It takes you to 1962 by the end of the montage. <laughs> you don't miss your water. But then the best one that I have to talk about is in the bar scene. There's a song by Magic Sam called My Love Will Never Die, which couldn't be more appropriate for this theme in this movie. way they produced it you know the guitars are all breaking apart like the speakers couldn't handle them <laughs> and his voice as well is so painful and every once in a while he hits a, a discordant note like it almost seems like a mistake but they didn't overdub it they didn't you know punch in and correct it and it just feels raw and beautiful and painful and to have that playing in this bar underneath this guy who at this point in the film not even his friends understand why he's staying committed in this relationship to have this song wailing in the background was something i'd been dreaming about for a long time I was thinking in that scene as well, was it you that dubbed them in? 
right? That's interesting. That's what was going through my mind. That's great. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's a question that's left up to the audience, really, because、yeah. the Lovings, in reality, they didn't even know who turned them in. There's some outtakes in the archival footage where they speak about it, but everybody's kind of a suspect, which is kind of the idea here. Even his mom. Even his mom. Yeah, like I've heard people say that as well. That's kind of the insidious part of the Jim Crow South is they could come get you from anywhere. Yeah. You know, they they could they could get you anytime for any reason. Yeah. They could come up the road or out of the tree line, and that's what makes it such a devastating institutionalized thing is that it just sat with these people the whole time. You know? Yeah. And there are a lot of people in the black community now in the United States that still sit with it. Mentioned Midnight Special, which is one of my films of the year. It's just oh, it's just fabulous, and it's hard to describe. There's elements of sci-fi there, but there's not. And the music, I could listen to the score over and over again.、Thank、there's、you. the main theme, and the Dokken Levi track is yeah, is yeah. wonderful, and Eldon's house.、Um, you know the names better than I do. <laughs> I know exactly what they apply to, but、um, well, there's that the piano in Eldon's house one's got the, the little. Oh, it's just so powerful. It's great. Of organicness with the use of the piano, but then you have that subtleness of sci-fi with the electronic that pulsates in. So subtle, but so clever. There were lots of things we were listening to. I mean, and this was in Wingo's wheelhouse. David Wingo, my composer. I say Tangerine, and he said Dream before it's out of my mouth. And we're talking about, you know, like the score for that Catherine Bigelow film, Near Dark,、uh, that Tangerine、yeah. Dream did. It's so good. But I don't know. 
with all due respect, sometimes that stuff gets a little cheesy, and so you have to temper it. Also, though, there was a contemporary band we listened to a lot of, and we used a small piece of some of their music, a band called From the Mouth of the Sun. They blend a lot of electronic and organic sounds, too. Uh, I was a big fan of them. He has to take all these feelings from the film, all these thoughts from my brain, um, all these examples of music, and, and he somehow has to put them all together and, and, and out comes this score that, that hopefully feels just undeniably wedded to the, to the imagery and the feelings. Mud's very similar. You know, my brother Ben is in a band called Lucero, and they did a lot of the music for Mud. And I put him together with Wingo, which is always dangerous combining, you know, creative people. But it's both like a of blind them. Blind date. Oh, it can it can end very poorly. And uh, but it, it in this instance, I think because neither of them have very big egos, which is also a really beautiful thing in, in an artist to find. It usually doesn't happen. Wingo was able to to listen to my brother's stuff and kind of absorb it, and the two just kind of communicated back and forth, so that even Wingo's score had this kind of imprint of some of the feeling of my brother's music. listen to Lucero, when I listen to my brother, 
it sounds like the place I'm from, you know, uh, but it doesn't sound at all typically Southern. Yeah. You know, there's no banjos or, or, <laughs> or like to your mouth harps or I don't know. It, it, it's, um, but it sounds very much like where, where we grew up, almost old, old world feeling. And, um, and so it was important to get that imprint on, on to, to the mud score. David Wingle got together, how that relationship formed, because yeah. your brother did the Shock music and for Stories. Hope and Stories, and then you worked with David after that. Yeah, and David pretty much did all the music for Take Shelter, save for there's a song over the end credits. Usually my brother does a song over the end credits. It's kind of like our signature. But I knew after Shotgun Stories that I was going to, with a film like Take Shelter, I was going to need a true blue composer. It was just too dynamic and too specific. With Shotgun Stories, Ben would record some music. I would tell him kind of what I liked. For instance, I love a bowed upright bass. I like it more than cello, to be honest. It fills the speakers in a way and it's just so painful. We've been saying that word a lot, haven't we? And just heartfelt that I said, well, take this song, because he had some songs on their albums, and I said, take that song, take all the lyrics off and play it with these instruments. They would go out and figure how to do that and then send me music and I would place it into the film. Sometimes I'd call him back and say, ah, could, could the guitar do this, you know, um, just go down there rather than go up, and he would make little changes, but it wasn't scored in a traditional way, and the movie feels very strange as a result, I think in a good way, but I knew I needed a true blue composer for Take Shelter, and my friend David Gordon Green, who's another filmmaker that I went to college with, had made this beautiful film called George Washington, and uh, Wingo had, had worked on the score for that, Yeah. which I thought was so great, all of these tones and, and, and beautiful sounds. living in Austin, which is where I live, in Texas. And so I just called Wingo and, and he said yes. And we could have not clicked. We could have not gotten along. His style could not have matched up with mine, but, but the opposite happened. Everybody talks about the score for Badlands, but I remember talking about for Take Shelter about the sound of wind. Then this idea of wind chimes came up for him, and it begins with this kind of tinkling sound of these chimes, and, and it's so beautiful and a little eerie and creepy, and ah, he just nailed it.
I think there's a part of the score in, in Mud as well, which is he uses a harp. Yeah, he does. The Mud soundtrack's wonderful as Thank well. Thank you. Thanks. Another great film. I'm so proud of it. Yeah. Well, you know, because that was so tough, I wrote that uh, opening sequence, which is really complex, him sneaking out of the house and going to the island and everything. And I set it to uh, De Moldau. And, um, and it was so funny because Sarah Green is my producing partner, and she also works with Terrence Malick. And they'd been working on Tree of Life for 10 years or however long. 85 years. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I, I show her this sequence. And I'm like, I really want to use Demoldow. And she just, her face kind of dropped. Oh, and she no. was like, yeah, Terry's using that in Tree of Life. And I was like, ah. Oh, oh. Damn but, that, but, Malik. <laughs> but to be honest, it didn't fit for the complexity of the scene. It, it worked like in moments. Yeah. But it didn't fit for the whole thing. I mean, that was the toughest thing to find. And in fact, it took till the end of the process. We had to write pieces of music for other parts of the movie. And then they were all kind of represented in this opening sequence because it goes and it has a little bit of kind of acoustic guitar, which was a rhythm my brother came up with. kind of inspired by, I don't know, a little bit of the Thin Blue Line score and, and Philip Glass, but all of it's got our own unique sensibility to it. I'm quite impressed by that piece of music. big on themes and sleeping in trees I think is the track yeah 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 yeah. it's the part that felt like the the signature it's not exactly a motif in that it's not that clear specific but it's just there enough that you start to identify with it and then it starts to be spread out through other other cues too Of contemporary tracks as well in, in Mud. Beach Boys are in there. Oh, yeah. Well, since she put me down, I've been up to it in my head. I come in late at night, and in the morning, I just lay in bed. But Ronnie, you look so fine. And I know I wouldn't take much time for you to hold. Dad's 
favorite music. Oh, that's nice. Nearly impossible. It costs so much money. (laughs) And apparently there was some big negotiation. They were like, we've never licensed it for so cheap. But on that movie, it was like like the most expensive song ever. But it was so important. And I was telling them from the beginning, I was like, guys, we have to end with Help Me Rhonda simply because we had written the scene. Yeah, I was shocked that it worked out. (laughs) I'm so happy. When you work with these, you have these relationships with your, you know, you're talking about David Wingo, but also with your actors as well, that you, you know, Michael Shannon being a, a, of a kind of constant through your films, which is absolutely wonderful. I imagine when you're writing, you have people in mind for those roles. I do, I do very much. Although I didn't have Joel in mind for Richard Loving when I sat down to write it. It wasn't until we were working on Midnight Special together that I finally was like, yes, this guy can do it. But, you know, I wrote Midnight Special and, uh, and Take Shelter with Mike in mind. I wrote Mud with Matthew McConaughey in mind. And that's a big part of it, too. The greatest actor in the world still needs to be playing the right part. I I just believe in that idea. And certainly really great actors, like all those we've mentioned, and Ruth and Jessica Chastain and Reese Witherspoon, all these people, they can move the needle, you know, or push the boundaries of their performances back much further than other people. But I still, I still think when something's written uh, with someone in mind, it, it is a, it's this beautiful synchronicity that starts to happen. I felt that on Mud. I felt that on, on Midnight Special, and I felt it here, uh, in Loving with, with Ruth and Joel. But that was because I wrote those parts for, for the real Richard and Mildred, and I found these two people that, in an uncanny way, somehow represented the, the essence of them. You know, I can't speak highly enough uh, about those two people. idea you know the greatest actor still needs a good script and, and, and the right role and you know we were waiting for Matthew McConaughey to get that right role oh again. we all were and yeah. you did it you you uh, were I think you ignited the McConaughey was it they had a weird phrase for the, the McConaughey <laughs> that's uh, down to you Jeff I don't know I, I think I'm a I'm real proud to be a part of it but you know that guy came to us he'd come off the set of the Paperboy and Magic Mike and then left to go to Dallas Buyers Club and I think there was maybe even another one in between and then True Detective you don't do that by mistake it's real easy I think to listen to Matthew who's a dreamer which I love about him and why I think he was so good for the part of Mud but it's real easy to kind of say oh he's just kind of out there experiencing the universe which is true but there's some calculation happening there by a really intelligent individual but I remember speaking to my wife leading up to Mud when when you know there were conversations about like oh no don't cast Matthew McConaughey that guy's not serious and she, she just in the background, she would just say, everyone wants to see Matthew McConaughey in, in, in something great. Just stick with it. And, um, and I, I believe she was right. Jeff, absolute pleasure. Yeah, and nice thank you for bookending my year with just wonderful films as well. So I look forward to the same next year as well. We'll see. I need a break. It'll take me about a year to get another one out. So. <laughs> Thanks very much for thank your time. You. Cheers. Thank, thank you. Another night full of heartache They just don't want to let us be Nothing left except outcast love But it's enough for me It's enough for me 
for me I won't let them keep us apart Cause love can't be bound by chains They might come for us in the dark But it's enough to stay It's enough to stay And I can tell them that I love you I can prove my heart is true might not be good enough for them, but I just want to be good enough for you. From the end credits to Loving, that's Ben Nichols' track of the same name, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with his brother, Jeff. My huge thanks to Jeff for taking the time to talk to us. What an absolute star he is. Loving is out in cinemas now with Wingo's score available via Backlot Music. Now, if you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to us on iTunes and check out all of our previous episodes. Or you can head to edithbowman.com where you'll also find a link to the Spotify playlist for this show and all the others. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're at Soundtracking UK. And please spread the word amongst your film and music-loving friends. Next up is Mike Mills, the man who, amongst many other things, has directed music videos for some of the biggest bands on the planet. And his new film, 20th Century Women, is awesome. I look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.